Today we'll be discussing the show, This Podcast is Delicious, and we'll discuss food prescriptions for patients. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today is a special food-themed episode. We'll be discussing Ali's other podcast, This Podcast is Delicious, with Ali's co-host, Marco Timpano. And we'll be discussing food prescriptions for patients. What a joy. What a thrill it is today to have an actual professional in the room with us, Asif, huh? Somebody who knows what they're doing, somebody I can talk to intelligently, and that's not true. That's not what happens here, but I will, I'll introduce him now. Asif, don't be intimidated, but Marco Timpano is with us. He is a fantastic podcaster. His background is as an improviser, actor, performer. He has been in, in various iterations of his life, a bartender, a server, a food tour guide in Italy. Marco, what am I leaving out? I don't know. I, I wish I had more people on my team like you uh, promoting me as that. Thank you so much. It's a thrill to be here on Dr. Versus Comedian with both of you who I admire We build greatly. you up at the beginning yeah. and then we take you yeah. down by the end. You know how it works I, here. It's I, not going to be all rah, rah, rah. I just like that I have someone who has my back, like Asif, because, you know, on this podcast, I feel like I have someone who who knows the the things I go through hosting yes, with you. So. Exactly, it yeah. is. The, we have a, what the, what's happened here? We have this bond, this unspoken bond. Even though Marco and I never met before today, we have this unspoken bond. So, and in fact. One thing that we have a bond over is Ali needs to cross-promote things more. That We always Indeed. talk about that. So now we got the cross-promotion going on here. I had to be if the one If it's any consolation, it's over. not that I'm a bad cross-promoter. I'm even a bad promoter in general. So if that makes anybody feel good, I don't know how to do it. It's not something that – I find it weird and show-off-y. Isn't that stupid? Yeah, a little bit. I, I would say that. Like, I mean, here's my buddy who was on Star Trek, and I have to find out, like, the rest of the world by a post after it's aired. And, you know, that's so – like, you got to get out there, Ali. You got you to gotta promote. You got to be proud of the stuff you do. That one was a little different. That one I was like contracted to keep my mouth shut. That was very, very tight security on that. Listen, High confidential. An NDA doesn't mean anything to me as your friend. So there you go. <laughs> That's fair. Okay. All right. So let's, why don't we start off by this, uh, Marco? Yeah. In an old episode of our podcast, we had what's called an origin story, which we sure. kind of said how Ali and I kind of got to you know, meet and, you know, our backgrounds and how we came up with a podcast. So maybe we just go over Marco Timpano's origin story. Sure. Where do I start? Back in the womb. Where were you born? Well, I was born in Toronto. Okay. What, what hour of the day was your mother crowning? And let's get to really the heart of... Uh... No, I think it was 2 a.m. All right. So, uh, you know, I'm an actor and improviser and a writer like you've mentioned here. And, you know, as a performer, sometimes there's lulls in your career and you have to fill it with creative endeavors and you're always working on something. And so a friend of mine said, you should get into podcasting. And I had at that time, I had no idea what podcasting was. So I listened to my first podcast. And because my background is radio and television, I had studied that in, in university. I was like, oh, this might be a fit. And so 
I said, let me pick something, a subject matter of interest to me that isn't comedy, that isn't anything to do with my other professional world. And so I knew I was an insomniac. And so I decided to do a podcast that I felt would help me as someone who had insomnia fall asleep. And so my first podcast was born, The Insomnia Project. And that was a labor of love and a learning a podcast of learning. So I learned a lot about podcasting because our first episode aired in 2016 before the podcasting landscape is what it is today. And so, you know, it was kind of the Wild West. A lot of I was learning. There wasn't a lot of resources out there for me. And from that, I had ideas for other podcasts. And I met Ali because my wife works in radio and he happened to work with Ali's cousin. And uh, Ali would be a guest on that radio show that she worked at. And she said, do you know Ali Hassan? I said, I've heard his name. I've seen him on CBC. She's like, he's a really great guy. And I think you would really get along with him. Cut to, I was at a wedding and Ali was there and it was this relation to Ali, who I happened to- My sister-in-law, by the way, okay. buddy. I, I don't want to interrupt, but uh, I, I was a cousin. Cousin. Sorry, who sorry. Was it? Sister. My wife's sister was a great friend of your wife's. Yeah. And so, and she worked, they worked together at another job. And so there I met Ali and we started to talk about our love for food. And I think I said, you know, I have this food idea for a podcast or I have a podcast idea that re revolves around food and and I, I would want to do it with somebody who understands comedy. And Ali was like, ah, this sounds like something I could really get into. And then we started discussing and shaping what we would like to see. And that's how the podcast was born. So I don't know if that's as an exciting an origin story, but I think that covers quite a span. I think that is great, Marco. And I'll add to that and say that it's a very rare thing. You know, you get to an age when you're when you're in your forties, you know, you kind of get like, I don't need any new friends. I don't need new I have friends, you know. And I met Marco in my forties and he's one of the very, very rare people. I remember leaving the wedding and I told my wife, I gotta do something with that guy. I, I need that guy in my life. I, I don't know what it is. And my wife was even looking at me like, What is you're weird. You sound like some weird stalker or something. But I just found we had this, I think, you know, we talk about, you know, uh, we don't talk about it, but people talk about in your life, you have batteries, people who charge you up and then you have vacuums and that's just life. That's, you know, and I was charged up by you immediately. And I just, it's one of those things like, I don't know what, I don't know what, similar to Asif and I, when Asif wanted to do a podcast. I don't think you really knew what it was going to be, Asif, but you were like, I like this world. I like this medium. So for people who are, are listening and who are possibly interested in podcasting, I think, you know, you don't have to know what it's going to be like right away. And also speaking to something you mentioned, Marco, you started in 2016. I think it's important to start in a framework where you can fail a little bit. Because you have these learning curves, right? And I, I, coming from a stand-up comedy background, it pains me to see stand-up comedians post their second set of their life online immediately. And it's like, oh, you're not giving yourself a chance to fail. In a year, this stuff that you're posting is going to be irrelevant. In five years, you're going to be like, I don't even remember these jokes. Yeah, and you build your audience. I think failing is an important part. As if I would ask you, how many people did you kill before you became a great doctor? <laughs> no comment. Okay. No, but I'm, I'm saying like, you know, with a medium like podcasting, I think it's important to get your stories out there. And, you know, a lot of people suffer from imposter syndrome or that feeling of, I don't know if I could do it, if I should do it. it what makes me a podcaster? Why should my voice be heard? Our voices need to be heard. Your voice needs to be heard. You have something to say that other people would like to say. 
the filter in which you say it with, for me and Ali, often it's comedy. That's sort of like an underlying genre or what we bring to the table. You know, it's just the medium or the conduit in which we bring our podcast to the table. But for any listeners out there who are thinking, maybe I should, I've always wanted to try. I would say try it. And like Ali said, if you fail, that's just part of the process. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to go back to two things because people are going to be listening to this and be like, you didn't follow up on something that Ali and Marco mentioned. You were a tour guide, for a food tour guide in Italy? Yeah. What, what was that all about? So what happened was a friend of mine worked for this company, and it's a high-end travel company. So they do bike and hiking tours all over the world. And it's like for people with money, right? Or at least at the time, it was like you had to have a certain amount of cash in your pocket to take this tour. And it would be like a week to two-week tour. And because I'm Italian and I'm fluent in Italian, and because I'm a very gregarious person, my friend who worked for the company said, oh, you would be great for this. I'm like, yeah, but I don't have the history knowledge that a tour guide needs. They're like, no, no, we hire guys. Guides, local guides that do that. We need someone who understands the North American perspective because you're going to have type A personalities who are from North America who expect something a certain way, but the Italians don't understand it. So you have to be that in-between in person. And as long as you can ride a bike or hike and speak the language, you would be great. And so I was like, okay. So I did it. They tested me and they said, great. And I said, I haven't ridden a bike since I was 14. They're like, that's not a problem. Get yourself on a bike. And I was like, All right. Next thing I know, I'm riding through the hills of Tuscany. And a lot of the trip is pre-planning the trips. And because it's high end, we would end up going to vineyards and olive presses and olive groves. And we would go to Michelin star restaurants and you would have to make that arrangements. And, you know, North Americans have all these food allergies and whatnot that Europeans don't quite understand. And you have to explain, okay, this person doesn't eat this type of fish. This person doesn't want wheat. So no wheat. And they're like, so does that mean no pasta? And I'm like, yes. And I said, but this person can't eat risotto every meal. So we've got to figure that out. And so it was a lot of that and dealing with food customs in the country and dealing with chefs who just don't understand or care about your food allergies or your sensitivities. And it's like, no, that's how I make the soup. There's a, I sprinkle wheat at the end. And if she can't have it, well, she can't have it. I'm like, yeah, but can you just not sprinkle wheat in the soup at the very end? No, that's how I do it. And that's it. Okay, that's two things are interesting about that. Number one, very, very exciting that you were able to say things like, I have a rash on the seat of my ass in Italian, right? Yes. That's good. You can explain to everybody why you couldn't continue on the bike tour. But number two, and we are going to touch on this subject today, later, as we discuss medicine. Did you find, out of curiosity, people eating the wheat or the dairy or whatever the things they were that they were allergic to in North America and then being able to eat those things in Italy? Yes. In fact, um, with regards to milk and wheat or gluten, let's say, they were saying to me that I guess the flour that's milled in Italy, they weren't having the same reaction to the flour, the pastas that were made from flours here in North America. Same with milks. They said the cheeses that they were consuming in Italy, for some reason, They weren't having the same lactose reaction or the milk, if you could help me clarify the term there, but they weren't having the same sort of reaction with the milk products that they were having back home, including, you know, their cappuccinos and whatnot. And I don't know if that's because they were just relaxed and having a grand old time enjoying the the countryside, but certainly they were finding that. I'll go so far as to say that uh, Asif can't answer that question, which is part of the problem and why we're doing this episode today. Yeah. 
But yeah, I asked that for a reason. We'll put a pin in that. We will get back to that uh, later in this episode. So I just wanted to also touch on one other thing, which is your past acting, Marco, because you we have the food area. Yes. And so were you a comedy actor, dramatic actor, jack of all trades? How yes. You- I mean, I'd like to still think I am, but I'll you? say, oh, wow, Asif's really trying to push you out of the industry. Yeah, it's huh? really like, you know, there's Making only room for himself, I guess. <laughs> So my background, yes, improv through the Second City. I've worked for them and I've written shows that have like won Canadian Comedy Awards. So I do have comedy has always sort of come naturally to me. I don't want to say easily because comedy is not easy. I'm sure, Ali, you would you would have uh, your thoughts on that. But um, so, you know, work Walk is... Walk in the park for me, buddy. Well, there you go. Like, you know. But yeah, so through that sort of getting involved through improv and then, you know, finding an agent, I've worked on film, I've worked on television. And I don't know if Ali said this, Asif, but this is something people find very interesting. I'm also a hand model, which I discovered oh, by yes. accident on a commercial set one day. And I have very still hands and supposedly I have really nice looking hands. And so that's another area of, uh, you know, in this world of performance that I'm also involved in. But yesterday, Marco had to see a doctor for his foot. Yes. So he has given right. way too much attention to his hands at the expense the of his been feet. Neglected, I, yes. I don't know why. Uh, offline, before you came on, Ali, we were talking about Marco. Uh, lower extremities, as we yes. say in in medicine. So, so what does still hands mean? By the way, what does that mean? They're very still on set. So, if I'm holding a product, I don't shake because when you zoom up close on a body part, you got to be still, right? Because you're really close on a body part. And if you shake too much on camera, it'll look really like it's shaking back and forth. And so, I've got still hands, and I'm able to hold a product without putting too much of my fingers on it. So, you know. Ali's hands are like catcher's mitts. You you throw something in his hands, all you're going to see is hand. You're not going to see product. Whereas I have delicate, dainty man hands and can hold the product with not too much finger. Your parents must be so proud, Marco. And now Asif's parents will be so proud as they are listeners to this podcast. I mean, he's a doctor. How can they not already be proud? It's a very delicate balance. It could go away at any moment. <laughs> is it something that's valued in the South Asian community, being a doctor? Or is Ali like the quintessential thing? He's a comedian. He's an actor. Is that the thing people are like, my son's I'm a trash. You, you, know, I'm trash. you know the answer to that question, Marco, before you, know you even answer it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it took him a while. But now that he's on CBC, you know, Marco, oh, man. he to Canada Day. He's on Star Star Trek is probably the biggest thing, right? Like, I'm sure that's what everybody is like excited about that you were on Star Trek. Star Trek is a very, you know, lots of brown people like Star Trek. So. Has he mentioned that he, he has a book coming out? Because when we talk about publicity, if he's not going to say it, I'm going to say it. He has this book coming out. I've pre-ordered it. I'm excited to have it. Once again, it's coming out this fall. Is there bacon in heaven? I hope I got the title right. If it's not on your list right now, write it down. If you don't know what to buy your friends for Christmas, the holidays, whichever holiday you celebrate, that should be the first thing you think of. And if you dislike someone, that's a great gift, too. <laughs> it's good for you. You know what? Our listeners you. of both of our podcasts should look to see whether either podcast is actually mentioned. you got to buy the book just to see whether it's mentioned exactly. or not. It's probably exactly. not, but you don't know. You don't know until you buy it. So – Okay, getting back to your guys' podcast, can you let me know how you guys came up with that idea for the podcast? Yes, of course. So we both worked in restaurants. 
I worked in the front of the house. So the front of the house in a restaurant is like your waiters, your hosts, your bartender, anyone you as a customer sees and interacts with. And Ali worked in the back of the house as a chef. I'll let, I'll let him like speak to that. Like an ogre. Yes. Uh, well, you know, as, as we all know, the worst part of service is the people. And so I wanted to avoid them. That's actually not even true. I, if I could have been in an open concept, I was doing a lot of cooking demos. So I was dealing with people on a regular basis, but yeah, no, I do. I love food more than I love people. I will say that. So making it in the back somewhere made me very happy. When I was a manager of a restaurant, I was the most miserable ever. I didn't like dealing with people's petty squabbles and, you know, I, I didn't like any of that, but yeah, caterer cooking instructor and a chef. That was a big part of my life for well over a decade. And so back of house and front of house, we said, we got to come together and, and create something. And we did. And then we had to recreate yeah. something. Well, originally we were thinking of, of the title for the podcast being front of house, back of house or F-O-H-B-O-H, right? But the problem with that is only people in the industry would know what that meant. And so then I looked and I wanted something very simple. I said, simple is key here. We want the podcast to just basically say what it says. And we found the title Eat and Drink was available. And I was like, this is perfect because it's very simple. And it talks about both aspects of cuisine, both food and drink, right? And because food and drink was taken, eat and drink wasn't. And so that's what our show was called until, and can I go into this? Please do. We realized that there's another podcast called Eat and Drink, and it's an evangelical Christian podcast talking about eating and drinking the blood of Christ, the blood and body of Christ, oh, right? And so yes. we were caught up in this kind of world of we're competing against Jesus, and it's hard to compete against Jesus in the podcasting space. And we did not gain one evangelical fan by mistake no. is a very, very sad thing. But coincidentally, they gained a lot of foodies listening yeah. to this. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we made the decision, we need to change the name and we need to add, and Ali said this, I'll give him full credit. It's like, we need to add the element of comedy in the title. So it has to represent food. It has mm -hmm. to represent drink, but there should also be comedy. And that's hard to do with just a few words. And an emblem. And then we came up with this podcast is delicious. And we thought that was a good title. That was one that spoke to us. And we were back and forth with a bunch of titles. And then we're like, that's what we're going to rebrand ourselves. And hence our podcast. Give us a, a sample of what you guys talk about. Because this rebranding was in the past six months, right? You guys have yes. come out with a kind of rebranding. So what, what kind of topics in case people are interested in checking it out? Yeah. Originally, our focus was uh, we had a format, which was Marco gives a recipe for a drink. And he would make it. So originally, originally pre-COVID, you know, Marco would make the drink in front of me and pour it. And, you know, it was like great ASMR happening there, too, as he's putting olive on a spear and shaking things up and making a general mess, it, making a general mess as well. There's not one time that Marco didn't spill something very nervous around me in person, apparently. And then I would bring some food to his studio that, that I had made and talk about how I made it. So he'd give a, a you know, drink recipe. I'd give a food recipe. And then we would do something, a section called what's in Marco's mouth. And the people do miss this, Marco. Mm -hmm. uh, I know you don't. 
but the people are upset that we're not doing this regularly. I genuinely hate this segment of the podcast, just so everyone knows. And the only reason we went with this is because of alliteration. So Ali's like, it sounds better what's in Marco's mouth because there's a lot of M's in there. So let's do this. And I'll let Ali finish explaining that. <laughs> thank God. And thank God for alliteration. Because God, what a, what a torture chamber he all of a sudden finds himself in. So he has to put a blindfold on and then open his mouth and I feed him something. And he has to say what's in his own mouth. And oftentimes and I'd feel a least my lip. No, your, 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 you. your fingers t graze my lips or the spoon <laughs> would go just a little too far in my mouth. And, you know, you have that, <laughs> that gag reflex. And it was like, no one here cares about my comfort level at all. And it was just it was it was almost as if I was tied in a chair and being tortured is that second segment for me. <laughs> and the only thing worse than me putting food in his mouth was during COVID, his wife was, you know, my surrogate. She would show me on screen what the product is, and then she would put it in his mouth. But mother, you know, moms, it was like a classic mom where moms are like, I, I don't have time for this here. Just eat it. And it was with zero tenderness. No, none of them. Uh, and zero courtesy. And all of a sudden he missed Ali Hassan I, and his tenderness. I greatly is... missed Ali Hassan. And my wife actually put dirt in my mouth. She had an aloe vera plant, so she put aloe vera plant, but she just pulled it from our from our plant and there was dirt. So she put aloe vera and dirt in my mouth. And I said, how is this even a food product? How did Ali okay this? It was one of the worst moments in my life. And that's that's it. I watched the relationship get pretty rocky a few times <laughs> as he would take off the yes, blindfold and be like, you. what are you feeding me? <laughs> yeah. What are you doing? Ali trying to cause problems here. So Lee also likes to really infer that I'm racist whenever we talk about ethnicity and cuisine. So he really likes to push me in areas where I feel uncomfortable and our <laughs> listeners don't realize this. So I always come across seeming like a horrible person and Ali comes off scot-free and, and looking, smelling like a rose. And that, and that drives me a bit crazy on the podcast. Which is why we couldn't call it this podcast is racist because only half the podcast is <laughs> yeah, no. or appears to be. You know what? You two have something in common as well, which is that- This the hatred Oscar... for Ali? Yes. No, yes. not that. Okay. That, that, that. That comes and goes. This one is constant. You both grew up. Asif, you grew up around French as an Ottawan and the capital you know, is, is a bilingual city. And yet you can't pronounce one goddamn thing properly in French. And Marco, as a guy who speaks Italian fluently, yes. you would think French, there's so many commonalities in the two languages, and not one French term comes out of your mouth correctly. It's really, it's a gift you both no, have. No, there's no problem with that because we speak French as it's often spoken by Anglos in our country. You and don't even do that well. Yeah, yeah, we do. We do. I stand by my French. At least I say it. At least I, it comes out of my you mouth. Say yeah. It. You know what? If that's the bar, <laughs> you're right at the bar. You say it. I say and it. that's where the On a recent episode though, you guys were talking about these French terms, right? That were yes. used and amuse bouche. Yes. <laughs> Is that how you pronounce it? I mean, that's a weird one because it's so hard to pronounce it in French. So you have to really go like une amuse bouche. And then how many people can really do that with their mouth? So they, it's just become a mousse bouche, right? It's just become a English word of a English version of a French word. Yeah. There's some tough ones there. And actually because of 
the struggle with the words we're going to do our next episode is italian lessons oh, so that was called go. french lessons where i was being quizzed about french terms so i'm gonna put it to mr know-it-all over here and give him some italian lessons and see if he well, knows you're giving him the, oh my god yeah, yeah and, i'm quizzing him. and i will say this i will not be a bastard the way ali was with french you can say Italian words incorrectly, and I'll tell you how to say them properly, but I'm not going to jump down your throat Listen, with the expectation that you I are see, a polyglot, a multilingual person. Uh, and uh, I see the color in your face change. I see a vein pop on your true. head when somebody says bruschetta, okay? I see what happens to you, and you're not comfortable with that. So that's what's going on. It's not that I'm not comfortable with it, but it's just pronounced incorrectly, and, and I don't like it when people force their mispronunciation onto me. Tell, tell tell people how brusetta 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 is actually pronounced. Wait, what's it's, the mispronunciation? Yeah, it's bruschetta 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 bruschetta. And and the reason I say this is okay. And we'll talk about it because uh, you're obnoxious. No, but I'm yes, not, what's I'm, the other reason? I'm not obnoxious. Listen, you pronounce it however you want, however you feel comfortable. If you want to pronounce it the correct way, it is bruschetta. And I know that. Anglophones can say it because we don't say chanti anymore for chianti, right? It's C-H-I, but we say it the, as we do in Italian, which is chianti. And we don't say getto. We say ghetto. G-H-E has that g sound, right? And so bruschetta follows that same kind of rule system. And I think we can all say it. And, uh, and You know, I think we had gained some new listeners for our podcast, Marco, and then you just lost listen, them the last I'm, 15 listen. seconds of being a curmudgeon. On a recent episode of this podcast here, Dr. vs. Community, Median, Ali professed his admiration and love for Brad Pitt, and he often acts like the Brad Pitt of the podcasting <laughs> world. So you need somebody like myself to take him down a notch, right? That's right. Asif? Exactly. And no, I, I listen. I'm on Marco's side here. So Thank you. It sounds like you guys have moved. You don't always do the drink and food portion anymore. It's It's just more kind of general topics that you guys pick, like the French pronunciations and things like that. Well, we stay in the food world. We'll often do interviews as well with uh, people in the industry, whether it be chefs or culinarians who are really impacting what what's going on in the food world, but always have discussion, robust discussions with regards to food and drink. And we both take, we will both bring different and similar perspectives to the table, so to speak. I think we probably should, Marco, have a what's in Marco's mouth exclusively episode. Oh, yeah. Just where I put seven different things I'll in do your it. mouth in a row. I'll yeah. do it. I'll do it. I won't what's... like it, but I'll do it. At least you have to say that I'm willing to try everything. You suffer for your art. Yes. God love now you. Now you're going to have to do it because everybody on this pod, <laughs> listen to this one's going to be like, oh, I got to check that one out. That's going to be the one I'm going to start with. So, uh, uh, you know, we'll Asif has asked me a lot of questions. I have a couple of questions for you now. Yes, sure. When it comes to the food world, what is something you enjoy that isn't healthy and you know better as a doctor, but that you'll consume? Oh, I don't know if we have the time yeah, I mean, for us to go you, through that. Yeah, so this is, and, and Ali and I have had many, I don't think we've ever talked about this on the podcast, so I'm glad you asked this, Marco. I am a non-food snob, and I and I liken it to entertainment, which I love. That's what, you know, I will watch, you know, we taped an episode recently where we talked about professional wrestling. I like professional wrestling. I also like The Godfather. I like Breaking Bad. I like The Wire. You know, I can run the gamut from, you know, Popcorn stuff, popcorn movies, popcorn TV shows, things you shut your brain off to ones that you have to 
you really think about. And I'm the exact same way with food. I've eaten at many Michelin star restaurants across the world and in North America. Humble brag. Exactly. He sounds like a food snob to me. Anyone who says <laughs> I'm not a food snob, first thing I think, here we go. Now he's explaining that he's not a food snob. And all I'm hearing is but this guy's a snob when listen, it comes to food. I love, and all he's good, he can tell you all this stuff. I love McDonald's. I love, okay. you know, don't you want a gourmet burger with this jelly and this and that? Yeah, I like that too. But okay. if it tastes good to me, listen, I think Kraft dinner tastes good. I think okay. Twizzlers taste good. So to answer your question, there's lots of things that may be considered bad. And we're going to talk about this in this in the second section about, you know, bad versus good foods and some of the controversies about that. It just like with that, I think you're allowed to turn your brain off and watch wrestling. And I think you're allowed to eat foods that may be not the best for you, just like you need to eat, you know, your portions of vegetables and fruits. And 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 eat. I've been to some vegan restaurants that I love. And, and yeah, I just think there's there's a the variety is what wow, the, he, he, he really, the life. He, I just came up with that. He really didn't answer the question. <laughs> no, it's it was a, it was a great answer in my opinion. I thought it was a great answer, but I do think the takeaway for most of our listeners is wow, Doctor Dojo has zero respect for himself. I think that's what people are going to take away from. This. Let me ask a follow up question: Is there something you've put in your diet? that you know is good for you, that you don't really like, but you kind of like, I need to incorporate this into my diet. And I, oh, and I don't question. need to hear how you're not a food snob, how, how yeah. you like uh, food from all over the world. Just answer the question here. We're not, we're, you're not running for office yet. It's a quick answer, Marco. Yeah. You'll see. Yeah. The answer is no. Okay. Overall, though, I used to do like protein shakes with psyllium, psyllium husks. Yeah. And psyllium husks really have no nutritional value, right? You eat them because they uh, promote regularity with your bowels into something. He wants to poop. <laughs> Trying to class this place up, not working. <laughs> so anyway, that was one thing. I mean, nobody enjoys eating psyllium husk because it has no real taste or nutritional value. So maybe that's it. But in general, no, I don't do that. Okay. Speaking of poop, how long <laughs> after I eat that burger that you referenced, the McDonald's burger, how long from when it goes in my mouth, when it should come out of my ass? What's the yes. what's the length of time? He knows nothing about nutrition. Okay. Don't you understand? Okay. That's why, the, that's why this episode. Body, that's why I know that how the body works. No, okay. but because a lot of people are like, that went right through me. That went right, right. through me. I sure. ate this burger really greasy. And then I had to go to the bathroom like an hour later. Oh, can you believe it transit through my whole body? No, that's not possible. I can't in like an hour. It's not going to go through. But what happens is when you have a greasy food, when you have a greasy food, when you have greasy food, it's, uh, that will stimulate it's, it's Jackson Pollock time. <laughs> That's right. It would stimulate some uh, some of these neurotransmitters, which are in our gut. Our, okay. our gut actually has a nervous system itself, and it will stimulate some of those. And whatever is in your lower bowels, like your lower intestine or stuff like that, will be evacuated. So it's the signal when you're, it's almost like, well, you're eating something now, better get rid of what's at the at the tail end of everything I see. so you can make room for it later on. Make room, yeah. everybody. Yeah. This the is, Big Mac is coming. This is fascinating. Thank you for answering that. I really appreciate that. Well, we'll get to our medical topic okay. in one second. And actually, sure. Marco, we're going to have you stick around for that. Yeah. If that's okay, I'd be kind of interested course. to hear your thoughts on it. I love you guys. I should say, I love one of you guys. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Actually, I'm just getting a live, this doesn't happen. I'm getting a live email. Somebody has just emailed us, could Marco speak less? Okay, I'll interesting. be happy to. I'll, you know what, I'll stick in the background, and if you need my input, who would need that? But if you do, I'm here. I'm here to support. We would be remiss, yeah. not now. See, after all that, right. I, I took a crap on you, and then I have to promote you again, which is ugh, so difficult. But we can't 
end this section without talking about one of the greatest things you've done. You are yourself an author, Marco. And I say greatest things you've done because it actually is a formative product in Asif's foray into podcasting, right? So Asif, you could maybe talk about this book that Marco wrote and how it yeah. uh, came across your radar. So so Marco, just so you know, and so our listeners know, when we were thinking about starting this podcast, I, I knew he Ali was doing a podcast with you. I had listened to it. So I said, oh, can you ask Marco this and this? And Ali, what do you think about what editing software I should use and this? And, and where should we should host? You guys use this host? Should I use this? And Ali stopped me in the middle of this, you know, huge page of questions, uh, you know, that I was asking him. And you said, seem like a rambler to me. Is he a rambler, Ali? He could ramble. Oh, he oh, can yeah. ramble. Okay. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, we're in the process of complimenting. Sorry, sorry. I, 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 I don't. I don't t- rambler t- stuff right now. Uh, I, and he said, "This is a quote. Listen, man. And you know, Ali says, listen, man, a lot. Yeah. Listen, man. The first thing you need to do is buy this book. And he sent me the Amazon link to your book. He's like, you just got to read this. It's going to answer all your questions. And the book is 25 things I wish I knew before I started my podcast, which is exactly what. I was asking these questions. So I bought it from uh, Amazon uh, on like an electronic version, right? It's an ebook. Yeah. And I read it and it was very, very helpful in it. And probably the biggest, I'm not going to go through the whole 25 list, but the most helpful thing is this idea. And I'm going to get the, the metaphor wrong that you use. It, it's like you have this monster, right? Which is yeah. the pressure of trying to get an episode, whatever you do, weekly, monthly, bi-weekly, whatever. And it's a real thing. It's a real thing yeah. to, to feel this pressure and stress. And your advice in the book is so good. Again, I'm just giving people a little taste Thank of this. You. It's your podcast. You want to release it once a month or you went from weekly and now you're too busy, so you're going to do it every month. It's your choice. If you want to release, you know, your episodes are usually 45 minutes, but you want to do a 15-minute episode, do it. It's your podcast. It was so freeing to hear that advice or read it. And so I do appreciate it, honestly, Marco. I I would recommend this book for anybody who is interested in starting uh, a podcast. Thank you. I really do appreciate that. Like consistency is important in podcasting. So your listeners want to hear like this is a great podcast as much fun as we're having it. And, you know, we're poking fun at each other. This podcast is informative. It's entertaining. And, it you know, oftentimes when you're speaking to a medical professional, you could freeze up and there's questions you want to ask. And so much of that is explored in this podcast. We as podcasters or we as professionals in multiple industries, we get so bogged down with, oh, my God, I've got to I've got to get it out there. It's Thursday. I haven't had something recorded and whatnot. And it's like, you know what? Take a breath. Your listeners will understand. They just want the quality content that you're delivering and they'll understand. What I would say is maybe on your social media, say we don't have a podcast this Friday, but we have one next. Let them know. But but yeah, that's a great thing that actually has helped a lot of people, including myself. The best thing, by the way, Marco, this is amazing. I, I, I ran into someone the other day who said, oh, I really like Doctor versus Comedian. And it sounds really good. And again, I, I don't think our podcast sounds amazing compared to other podcasts necessarily. But I think, you know, we try with the production value. And they said, that must be Ali because he has his CBC connections and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, my God, you have no idea. It He's is the worst. 100% He's the not. worst. You, you have an experience. No, you really are. And I say that with with a little bit of love, but mostly hate. You come to the table and you're like, how do I turn this mic on? And that's the extent of what Ali w- contributes with regards to the technical aspect of podcasts. 
But you know, he is the Brad Pickle. Is not the, my thing. I'm the Brad Pitt of podcasts. You, you really are. So you know, I get it. I get it. And I will say, Asif, you are kind of the George Clooney of podcasting. So I don't want to just leave. No, leave that's one very nice because the medicine aspect. Well, you got a really cute beard. I mean, like there, that. There what's going on there? That's pretty okay. sexy. You got to admit, you can't see it, folks, but. And by the way, when we say this is perfect that you said George Clooney, because in Oceans 11 yes. and 12 and 13, the one thing Brad Pitt is doing when he's beside George Clooney in that movie, what is he always doing? Eating. Always yes. eating. And that's, that's me. So yeah, that, that's what we really mean there by I'm go. the Brad Pitt yeah. of podcasting, always shoving some food in my face. And I just want to say this about your podcast, and I know I know this segment's going to end, but for anyone who's listening to this podcast and really enjoying it, please rate this podcast, write a review of this podcast, let people know how much you enjoy this podcast, because these two hosts are very humble. And if they're not going to promote this podcast, I am. So it is your duty as, and I'm not a doctor, but I will say this as a doctor of podcasting, you go online and write what great podcast is, five stars only, let your friends know, really help publicize this podcast, get it out there. That's that's my PSA for today, my public service announcement. That is our chat with Marco Tempano. Marco is sticking around as we talk about this next subject because I think it's a subject of great interest for most people. Oddly, not a subject of great interest for most people. Doctor, so this is what I want to talk to you about, Asif. This, you know, this is coming from an article that was in, I think it's an online magazine, theconversation.com. Yeah. And you had seen it and it came across your, your eyes and you found it uh, intriguing enough, even though I've been talking about exactly this subject for 15 years and you've never found it the least bit intriguing. But, you know, th this comes from this idea that Hippocrates is alleged to have said, let food be thy medicine and let thy medicine be food. And even though, Asif, you took the Hippocratic oath, same Hippocrates, that food for that prescription of food has been largely ignored. And what I really want to start off with is this idea that almost every doctor I've ever spoken to has said something to the effect of, if I tell you I learned about nutrition for more than a week, in my entire med school, I'm probably exaggerating. And yet we eat food three times a day, seven if you're Marco, we eat a lot Indeed. of times a day. We are constantly putting this in our system, whatever this is, how can it not be studied? Isn't food vital to health? And aren't you supposed to be learning about health as a doctor? What gives, Asif? I know. And Ali's been ranting and raving about this since well before this podcast even started. Oh, know? yeah. He, he's been he's – been and you're right, Ali. Like the evidence shows that uh, in a study looking at U.S. medical schools, less than 1% of all lecture hours are spent on nutrition. And uh, another assessment uh, from uh, Europe and countries outside of Europe said their conclusion was nutrition is insufficiently incorporated into medical education regardless of the country setting or year of medical education. So – for sure, it's a problem that's been identified. And when you look at what the issues are in the world, a lot of it has to do with food. So a report on the state of health in the US from 2013 found that the single most important risk factor for disability and premature death was related to inadequate diet. 
And if you look at the globe, one of every five deaths across the globe is attributable to a suboptimal diet, more than any other risk factor, including smoking, drinking, and things like that. And in Canada, even, we have this issue with food insecurity, where people are unable to obtain a diet of sufficient quantity or quality in order to maintain their health. And they think in Canada, there's 4.4 million people who are food insecure. Listen, I'm not going to underestimate or, um, you know, diminish food insecurity in any way. But if you're not teaching doctors about nutrition, then it's an education issue more than anything in my mind. If I go to the doctor, affordability comes second. What if the doctor told me, this is what you've been eating, this is what you need to be eating, and it didn't have to be $16 organic squash. It just has to be, hey, replace these things, which are high in all these things, you know, whatever it is. This is raising your blood cholesterol. This is raising your sugar level. This is, and so this is, you know, let's take a look at your diet and talk about things you can take out and incorporate. It's not all about a lack of affordability. It's about no doctor seems to be like, wait, what did you eat for lunch? Oh, you had a, a granola bar. Listen, a granola bar, first ingredient is sugar. Second is glucose fructose. Third is like this, you know, semi, uh, you know, this adulterated wheat product of that, where are those conversations, right? It's, I really, and again, not to diminish food insecurity anyway, it's a very real and it's a huge issue for so many fr problem, for so many families. But I think if you're not being educated, we turn to doctors as experts. And if doctors don't even have the first clue about how to guide somebody through food, because pharma has been whispering in their ear so loudly, with, not whispering loudly, that's as me, yelling in their ear so loudly about, hey, recommend this, recommend this, prescribe this. I mean, you, you don't stand a chance as, as the average consumer or patient. So Ali, that's a great point. Now, how close do, are there people that doctors can refer to that follow the nutrition or follow the food that can work with doctors in this? Because I've heard on this podcast, us, if you said, you've said many times, medicine can be very investigative, right? You're trying to find things. So how much does food follow into that investigative nature of medicine? Yeah, and it sometimes does. There are some things, you know, celiac disease is the classic. You mentioned wheat before, those right. people who couldn't eat wheat when you were taking them on tour in Italy. That's a classic one where your diet is intricately linked. We also have some what are called inborn errors of metabolism where you have difficulty processing proteins or things like that. It can, that can cause serious neurologic problems. So sometimes you're intricately involved. And of course, diabetes is a huge one where it's not the f exact food you're eating, but as Ali mentioned, things high in sugar, you want to eliminate, you want to do things that are more whole grain and things like that. But, you know, it's a good question. And so we have to collaborate with dietitians and nutritionists. And so there is people, Ali, whose job it is to do that. Do doctors collaborate with them as much as they should? Probably no, not. And, not. And the studies show that even in patients where there's a clear nutritional link, example is B12 deficiency. Vitamin B12 deficiency, very common in elderly people. And how often are we counseling people about how to uh, address that B12 deficiency or instead of just giving them the B12 shot, right? Maybe that's what you're getting at uh, before. Yeah, sure. Like, is there a food item that they could incorporate in their diet 
that wouldn't require them to get that B12 shot? Is there something they can do that doesn't require that elderly person with a cane to hobble their way all gnarly and crooked backed into your office to get that shot? Wow, great picture you're painting of the uh, senior citizens. That's just how I feel this morning. (laughs) Gnarly. That's just how you feel. That's right. We're speaking for ourselves now. So yeah, yeah, so this is all important, everything you guys are saying. And in fact, you have kind of hit on this idea of this food prescribing, Marco. That's exactly what this article talks about. This food prescribing is part of a bigger endeavor, mainly started in the UK, now coming into North America and even in Ontario where we three of us all live, where they're doing this. It's called social prescribing. So it's they want healthcare practitioners to think a bit about non-pharmaceutical interventions, just like you said, Marco and Ali. So this could be things like food prescriptions, which we'll talk about in a second, but dance classes, walking groups, volunteer work, art lessons, acting, you know, things what can you do? Because in other words, for example, like depression, depression in an elderly person who is isolated, like kind of the example you were giving Marco, are there ways to treat that depression other than putting them on an SSRI? Sure. Like Prozac, right? I think it's safe to say that throughout history, we've all been sort of medicating ourselves with food in certain degrees, right? So if one has a sore throat, the first thing I think of is get some honey, to that yeah, throat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're Jewish and someone has a cold, chicken soup is the answer, right? We've mm-hmm. heard that through the ages. Non-Jews have started doing that fair as well. Enough, just fair enough. Fair enough. As a Gentile, I do it as well. But if you have scurvy, get yourself to citrus, right? So why aren't we doing that more? Asif? Why isn't yeah. there a book of, okay, what can help with this gout? Or what can we there subtract? It it's called chicken soup for the soul. <laughs> Because gout is yeah. is a food related. Yes, uh, it's a great example. Gout is a great. Nobody example. wants to yeah. talk about gout, but my foot is swollen. That's all I'm going to say. Yes. Rich man's disease, buddy. The rich man's disease. That's what yeah. they call it. It's true. And then you have to counsel people about what foods to avoid, usually right. high in protein, things like a shellfish and things like that, as you know. And so for absolutely for sure. And so this is the idea. You guys don't have to get so hot about this, but we, we're- That's uh, what we, we do. Exactly. Said, that's what the, we their, do. Their podcast is about food, it's everybody. It's passion. about food. It's called passion. passion. So- Let's go over this food prescribing because it is exactly what you guys are talking about. I want to be clear about something because I I wasn't 100% clear. In medicine, you call the umbrella term is social prescribing and one element of social prescribing is food. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And what does food prescribing look like? Right. So there's different ways to look at it. And some of it, again, has to do with Marco's example. So you're going to have some people, he's very happy about that. You guys can see him. He's he's actually giving me a double bicep shot right there. He's so excited. So there's three ones. There's medically tailored meals, medically tailored groceries, and then produce prescriptions. Okay. So the first one is medically tailored meals. This is for those people who are actually unable to shop. They they are so frail or have such complex medical stuff. They can't even go shop or prepare meals for themselves. So they have to have a meal delivered to them. Very similar to how you guys might know people who are really into bodybuilding and stuff like that and weightlifting. They'll get delivered meals to their house with everything portioned, your proteins, your carbs, everything, you know, is all portioned out. It's the exact same thing, but this is a medically administered thing because we know you're what we call a brittle diabetic. And so we're going to do that. And one study from the US looked at about a thousand participants who were getting these medically 
tailored meals. They found a 16% reduction in healthcare costs, about 50% fewer inpatient hospital admissions in that group, and 72% fewer admissions into like a, a nursing facility, like a nursing home or something like that, compared to the other group. So that was the only intervention they did, and they found that this positive thing. So for those very fragile patients, that maybe there's these medically tailored meals that you can do. The next step would be medically tailored groceries, okay? So they might not be able to go out and do everything, but they can pick up these groceries and then prepare it at home. And then they you kind of prescribe, okay, you should buy this amount of fresh fruit, this amount of fresh veggies, right? So that's the kind of a, meet, um, a middle ground. And then the one that they talked about in the article, and the article is actually from Guelph, Ontario, you know, close to where you guys are in Toronto, about an hour away. My wife is from Guelph. So, you know, very, very... Uh, Shout out, Guelph. It's, Guelph is also a food belt for anyone who doesn't know this area of Ontario. It's where a lot of agriculture happens. And their university is a huge agricultural university there. So uh, you can see why they have this kind of hub there. And, and what they were doing is basically you get a prescription. It's from a nurse practitioner in the community for people who have cardiovascular risk factors, diabetes, etc. And it's for fresh fruits and vegetables. But they don't just give them the prescription because they also give them a $40 voucher for a farmer's market, a local farmer's market, where they can now spend the money to buy these things. And they evaluated this in a, in a publication and they found patients were less food insecure and their consumption of fruits and vegetables increased. And they, when they did a qualitative study, so they kind of interviewed people afterwards, they thought that they enjoyed the fact that things were more available, accessible, and affordable, obviously, because you're giving them some cash to spend on, on this. Right. Just to be clear, it's not cash. It's a food voucher for the good farmer's point. market. And we'll, we'll get into right? that in a second. Oh, but Good point. Know. Even for me, you give me 40 bucks, it's tequila, right? Right to the, I'm going right to the wrong place immediately, even though I value eating good food. Yeah, so that's, and, that's great. And we know what Asif would spend it on since he follows the Big Mac wrestling diet. So <laughs> yeah. the, these vouchers are really, really important. I think if you look at the potential for this, there's a study from the U.S. that said subsidies like this could prevent 1.93 million cardiovascular disease events and save approximately $40 billion in healthcare costs in the U.S. if you follow this kind of produce prescriptions for people. And so it's certainly like a potential that you could see out there for this. Not to mention how many lives it would save too. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at, at you know monetary look, but imagine how much lives it would save. First of all, how many lives it would save. Second of all, when we talk about life-saving, we sound a little bit like chumps because, uh, so if you correct me if I'm wrong, this is bad business for pharmaceuticals, right? This I is mean, like, hold on a second. Now somebody might be eating well and taking care of themselves and have less of these indicators and ailments and things that bring them into the pharma world. I mean, is there not a huge conflict there? I, I don't know, Ali. I think that's a bit of an either or thing. You're making a this dichotomous relationship where it doesn't have to be. It okay. could be both, right? Okay. I don't think you're go just doing this food prescribing is going to put pharmaceutical companies out of business. Will it decrease the number of prescriptions necessary? That's all I'm saying. Probably, yes. hopefully, but you know, it all sounds good, but I think we need a bit more evidence. Remember that study I was just telling you about, which was projecting how much money could be saved and how much cardiovascular disease could be prevented, is a projection. It's oh, not okay. – it's, it's not – they haven't – 
they haven't solidified that as data. So yeah. I'm just saying. Well, and that's what I want to, you know, evidence comes from doing the research. Right. Is there money? Is there funding for research? Are there attempts at yeah, that? They, because yeah. the doctors right now, I'm sure, I'm going to tell you a quick little story. You're like, why are you getting so hot? Quick story. My father had eczema on his shins most of his life. And my sister and I would mock the way he would scratch himself like a dog in heat, you know? In my 30s, all of a sudden, I get the same thing, right? I get all this scratching of my ancient. My father, the only thing that was ever done for him, hydrocortisone cream, right? A steroidal mm -hmm. cream. Nobody ever asked about his diet. Same thing with me, steroidal cream. Nobody asked about my diet. Then, just because I saw some dude, I read some article, I was like particularly out of shape. And I was like, how do I lose weight? And I see some guy who went gluten-free. I didn't even know what gluten was. I didn't know a thing about it. So I read about gluten is this protein, this compound, and you have, you know, this is where it is. And so I started eating more rice, corn, whatever it is, cut down a bunch of wheat, lost a bunch of weight. One day I realized, you know what? I'm going to reward myself. I'm going to have a few beers. I'm going to have some pizza. I'm going to have some pasta for dinner. What happens the next day? My shins just blow up. All that itching comes back. So I'm like, clearly I took weed out, no itching of the shins for three months. Didn't even realize it. Bring it back. So there's something. I have something. I don't have celiacs clearly, but I have, there is some connection. I go to my doctor and I tell him, I think I have some kind of wheat, like a mild wheat intolerance. And he said, that's not really a thing. Buddy, I didn't tell you I believe in ghosts, okay? I told you that I used my own body to find something about myself. And he said that, that we don't have that doctor anymore, partly for that reason. I'm like, man, if you're not going to work with me, if you're not going to even investigate these things. But I, I, again, I don't blame him. I blame the system that we're all part of for not knowing anything about that, to not for not even entertaining that that's a possibility. And obviously, also, if you're part of that. So that's why I'm especially keen to find out like what research is doing, what research is happening and who's funding that research and what is, what is that research up against? Because it does decrease profits for certain very profit hungry businesses. You're absolutely right. Inter but as we talked about, you know, Marco, we have a saying on this podcast, anecdotes aren't evidence because that's the truth. And so, but Ali's point is, well, is it something that should be further investigated this relationship between eczema and gluten, say, or something like that. And so I think it should be. And yeah, there is the problem is there isn't enough evidence to start saying that we should do this. So your question, Ali, is who's going to do it? And it is a fair question. You know, Ontario, the province we live in, does have the social prescribing task force that's looking at this, looking at ways to do this, because I think it is important to think outside the box. Could it potentially be hard to get funding? Perhaps. Social prescribing, like I said, has taken off in the UK, but the evidence for it, I'll link to some articles on our webpage about it, not necessarily the strongest evidence, and it's really that we have insufficient evidence, right? There's two things in medicine. Do you have evidence that something does not work, or do you have evidence, or we just don't have the evidence, right? This is one where we don't have the evidence. So I agree with you, Ali, you're right. 
But what's the threshold to evidence? How much evidence do you need before you say that's enough evidence? Because I would imagine that evidence is going to be very difficult when you come to food because there's so much out there. So how does the evidence balance with your prescribed? Because I know you're evidence-based and the anecdotes aren't something you necessarily jump to us, if, as you should as a doctor listening to this podcast. But when is there enough evidence for you to be like, okay, bingo, bango, that's where we go? Yeah. Could you say evidence? One more time, Mark. Bingo, bango, <laughs> evidence. So I think it depends. So some of the studies we talked about were retrospective studies. So they initiated, say, a food prescription model, and then they looked back and saw, you know, how did people do? What did they kind of think? That's not that strong because obviously there's going to be some recall bias and things like that. Oh, yeah, I did get a $40 voucher. Of course I did this and I did this. What you really want to do is, you know, the gold standard is randomized trials, which are sometimes hard because that way you're controlling for other confounding factors like recall bias and things like that. And so you might think, well, that's a bit hard, but there are ways to do it. So, for example, say Guelph, the city of Guelph introduces this food prescribing model. They're doing it as a public health measure, so it's the whole city doing it. You could pick another city, say Waterloo, which is another city down the highway from there, relatively comparable size. Waterloo is a bit bigger, but relatively comparable size, who decide to not do that. And then you look at their incidence of diabetes, cardiovascular disease over time. And then you can really see whether there's a difference. Because if you say that the population of Guelph and Waterloo is relatively similar, then you could do that. So these are called cluster randomized trials. So there are ways to do it. I think the problem is our healthcare dollars are finite, right? In general, well, in every country, it just depends who's paying for it. Even the US, it's still finite. And so you have to be, you have to judge very carefully in terms of what you put your money towards. That's all it is. I think when we want to make evidence-based decisions, because things can sound good, but they may not be. And maybe you look at different outcomes too, right? Maybe you alleviate budget constraints by giving someone a food prescription and that allows them to actually afford their medication, which they couldn't afford before. And especially in the US, right? Where people definitely do not go to the doctor and do not pick up prescriptions because of the cost. And we're a bit lucky in, in Canada. To live. So, so maybe it's just a different way of looking at it, a different outcome that you look at. But I want to ask you guys this. There are some concerns with this whole idea of social prescribing and food prescribing. And I'm very curious to get your guys' thoughts on some of these criticisms based on your food experiences, if you think they're valid or not. So one question is, when you're just giving someone a food voucher, say, because they have insecurity, food insecurity, are you ignoring what led them to the food insecurity? I'm talking about poverty, mental health, substance abuse, racialized groups, and systemic oppression in general. I mean, you know, we have a First Nations population which has been systemically oppressed. You know, are we trivializing that? I don't know. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So again, this is all anecdotal, but I, until recently, uh, the neighborhood we were in was heavily, around us were buildings that were heavily subsidized, and it just happens to be a lot of Pakistanis, a lot of Somalis. So when I would go to the local grocery store in our neighborhood, just, you know, I'm a student of the world, student of life. I'm watching. When you see what's in people's grocery carts, it's like... You can't be judgmental about these things, but part of you is wondering why a mother of five children has four bottles of orange crush soda in her thing and then uh, yo-yos and ho-hos and all these other things. And it's 
you know, as a guy who was a chef for many years, I'm also just curious, looking for where's the nutritional stuff. And this is my big concern in the world of food. It's not just nutrition. It's about you cater to these kids who I like this and I want this. And all you keep doing is forgetting and leaving behind and basically completely making recipes from generations gone by just disappear. And that's what we have done, young people. We're not making half the stuff our parents made. And what comes to mind is probably like liver and onions, and I don't want to eat brains that my parents ate. But think about all these other recipes you grew up with. When your parents are gone, those recipes are probably gone. There's their unique thing. So there's the culinary aspect, and there's the health aspect. That's what I look at in these grocery stores. And so these communities, and Pakistanis I can speak very knowledgeably about, very high rates of diabetes, very high rates of heart disease as a community because of our diet, because of our lifestyle. Some might say genetics. And then you look at the grocery carts and you're like, well, there's no mystery. There's got to be somebody here to educate these people on what they should and shouldn't buy. And it's not happening. But I you will know, also I'm, add this <clears throat> as a white man. So let me speak for here the, we go. Let me speak oh, for God. let me speak for white people because you know they need to. No be, one has. No one exactly. has. Right. No, but like you know, it's fascinating. My wife will often mention this. It's like you know, you're talking about that particular socioeconomic groups, and when I look at socioeconomic groups that which are let's say middle class, upper middle class, predominantly white, right? There's this sort of concern and fascination, and like this sort of like you know, almost cult like fascination and following of feeding breast milk to your child, feeding breast milk to your child, breast milk is so important. And it is. But the moment they turn two or three, it's all chicken fingers all the time. <laughs> and that shift happens where it's like, oh, let's get the breast milk. Let's make sure we get breast milk in. And then they, you know, they're old enough to That's sort of waddle and put things in their mouth. And it's like chicken fingers, just pop chicken fingers and pizza in the oven. Let's just hand that to the kids, right? Yes, because the foundation of a home is the most important part of the home, you see. So you built the breast milk foundation. Right. And now no, you can nothing go else into ho-hos yeah, yeah. and yahoos. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I want to talk about some of these other controversies because that perfectly leads into that. And it also leads into, Marco, your question you asked me in the first half. Does this food prescribing lead into this dichotomy of good and bad foods, which is what you, you were asking me about, and the stigmatization of fat bodies in the healthcare system, which is a whole other topic, which, which Ali and I have to, you know, talk about. And it's a real thing, you know, uh, this idea of stigmatizing foods and, and not factoring in what brought people there, what brought you to the dance. Mm -hmm. uh, th there's another thing as well, which is is this paternalistic? And I think I, I won't speak for you, Marco. I think Ali thinks no. Of course not. You know, we're 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 getting rid of the patriarchal medical system where you know food that's that's a commonality thing. It's not a top down thing where you're prescribing something. But are you just coercing patients to make different food choices? You know, oh my my doctor's telling me I got to eat this. Oh, I guess I better do that. And then you're eroding their own sense of control over their bodies. Right. These are, these are almost slightly rhetorical, but I think it's it's important to think about some of these things. Two other things to mention. One is, should we just give them cash? And there is evidence that cash transfers help with healthcare outcomes. Again, I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to go into too much detail. But Ali gave a good example of why maybe cash is not a good idea. Yeah, I don't know if that is. I think what I really liked about the food vouchers at the at the farmer's market, although it need not be a farmer's market, it could easily be a grocery store, you're re-injecting that money back into 
your own community as well. And I think that's great too. You're supporting local, you're staying local, you're going to the grocery store. I think a nice compromise would be not the farmer's market, but the grocery store. That way somebody's like, okay, I got this $40 voucher. I'm going to get $33 worth of what I was suggested by the doctor to get. And then I'm getting this tub of ice cream that I really love. I think that allows you to exercise some control over what you want and also be like, okay, I'm also making majority responsible decisions for my body. I think that's the way yeah, I, I think that's a it. fair way of looking at it. That that probably is you're trying to minimize that paternalism, right? By giving them yeah. some uh, choice in the matter. I think that's reasonable. I think the, the other thing that you mentioned, Ali, which I think is really important, and I think you two especially, would this would resonate with you, is that food is more than just nutritional value, right? It's culture, it's identity, it's history, a belonging to a community, a relationship to land, very important with our, our First Nation, you know, brothers and sisters. Land and sea. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right? And so is Thank it, you, white man. Is it <laughs> sterilizing and medicalizing something that really has no place to be medicalized. By but we've been medicalizing food for longer than people were calling themselves doctors. So I think our perspective has changed. Mm -hmm. But the fact that we have been medicalizing food from the dawn of time, you know, would suggest that it's not a bad thing. Do you mean like using this herb for this property or things like that? Sure. Like even what I mentioned before, like, you know, they discovered that there was a correlation between scurvy and citrus yeah, when they were doing right. long boat trips. Right. And it's like, yeah. okay, start eating this, right? I don't know if that's considered medicine or pre-medicine or what, but we will do it often, even like within our own, you know, cultural background. I know, you know, growing up Italian, there were certain things you would eat if you were under the weather, if you had a certain thing or like, you know, using food as ailments. So using chamomile bags of tea. For your eyes, when you have um, – I don't know what it's called, but you know when your eyes produce like a crust and will, will uh, close your eyes, keep them shut like conjunctivitis? Conjunctivitis. Yeah. The solution my mother would give is use chamomile tea bags to rest on your eyes to help loosen that up. I don't know if that's medically sound, but it was in my household and it was something that she learned from her mother, grandmother, et cetera, going down the line. Also, what you put forward there, and I, of course, I love how much food is part of cultural identity. It's what bonds us with other cultures often. It's what, you know, it creates memories. It helps us connect with our own history, with other people's history. I'm never going to be the guy to d diminish that. But if that's used as a crutch, that's a huge issue. You know, like imagine some doctor told some, I'll stick with Pakistanis. I'll stick with my own here. If somebody told somebody like, you need to cut back on your samosas. You know, if you're the type of person who'd be like, that doctor is infringing upon my culture and my culture is samosas, you're a moron, okay? You're an absolute moron because it's still, I mean, look at the bag that your deep fried ball of dough came in. It's completely soaked with oil. If you want that in your system, then you can do that. But your doctor's not against your culture. Now, if your doctor is like, you have to cut out all of that stuff, then... I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, are you making a choice for your health? If your culture is more important than your health, you're probably using it as a crutch, I would say. Another example similar to what Marco's saying is country foods. You guys know what country foods are, mainly in by uh, Inuit population, which is uh, game meats, 
forage foods and things like that, which we ask about in medicine because country foods can sometimes predispose you to parasitic illnesses. So you have to ask about that. You know, have you had country food lately or things like that? I didn't even know what country food was until someone mm-hmm. explained it to me. But we see a lot of patients from McCallowit at my hospital. So, you know, you got to be a bit careful, well, right? Country food is, is such an integral part of what it is to be Inuit. You know, oh, you want, you want to start putting so- judgments on that? It's very interesting that when you said paternalism, I thought immediately of country foods and I thought of all these people who are, you know, about animal welfare and animal rights. And so that's where indigenous communities are probably feel under attack more than ever. It's like this is a generation's old practice of like hunting and using the animal, every part of the animal. We feed each other. This is how we this is how we teach, you know. There's a book called The Right to be Cold, Sheila, uh, Sheila Watt-Kluche wrote, talking about the practice of hunting teaches young children in the North about patience. It teaches them about planning. It teaches them about, you know, there's a bonding that you do, you know, with the, the whoever in the, usually it's the father who's hunting and the children as they're there and they're waiting for the animal. And you, you're just taught about also using that animal for every part, being grateful for the animal, this kind of thing. And all that as the, as climate change comes in, all of that is being affected in a huge way in communities that, you know, people were brought up in a certain way and all these traditions are eroding as ice caps are melting. And so on top of that, you have people like, oh, that's so cruel. They're shooting this animal. They're killing this animal. That's where I think when you say paternalism, I think 100% of country foods immediately. And so that's where I think there does need to be a sensitivity, but it's more than a sensitivity. Sensitivity feels like you're dancing around the subject. It has to be an absolute understanding and a knowledge of how different communities have been brought up and how they work. And now if there's some food that's very, very unhealthy and it's contributing to the gout or whatever in the community, then that's a conversation worth having as well with a little bit of courtesy and a little bit of understanding of like, this is our... This is what we do. This is our culture. We've gone deep into culture and background and all that, but basically just can you try to sort of appreciate the fact that food is something people eat every single day, multiple times, and there sh- it should be part of the discussion of medicine. So what is the way forward? What is the future for food prescribing in medicine as far as you see it? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One, as I said, more studies, uh, you know, looking at this. So we have the confidence in this intervention to allocate healthcare dollars. I think we, if we're going to do that, we need sustainable funding. A lot of these are pilot projects, especially in Canada, because it's not quite as integrated into the healthcare system as it is in, say, the UK. So we need sustainable funding where the government says this is a valuable thing. Again, we need evidence for that. And as Ali is saying, the integration into healthcare itself. So when you go see your doctor, you do that. But where does that start? starts in medical school. And so I think it's always a debate in medical education. Do you start it in the community, right? And then you 
teach it to the medical school? Or is the idea you teach it to the medical school and they will be the pioneers once they get into practice because you've shown them? It probably you need to do both. Like I said, it's not an either or thing like some of the other things we talked about. Because if you introduce something in medical school, it's like, this is so important. And they get out in practice and nobody is doing food prescribing. You know what they're going to say? Well, that was a little BS they told me in medical school that doesn't apply to the real world. So you have to be, I think probably it's both. But I'll, I'll tell you guys, we can finish on this. There's this culinary medicine curriculum that they started in the U.S. So I thought you guys would be interested. Tell me more. This is great. And it's all about, again, we're getting back to Italy. It's all about the Mediterranean diet. Teaching people, yes, they win. The Italians win. Marco is raising his arms triumphantly as though he has cooked more than five things in his life from the Mediterranean. I wanted to diet. scream Forza Italia, but I just didn't want to <laughs> stop stop the conversation. You didn't want to blow the mics. So this was a pretty big program. They did at 32 medical schools in the US. They had about 4,000 medical trainees and they educated them about Mediterranean diet, nutrition, attitudes, and things like that. But they actually had them go into the kitchen and cook Mediterranean diet meals. Okay, Mediterranean diets, again, high in fish, high in uh, fruits and vegetables, olive oils, low in fats. And Beans and legumes as well. Yes, exactly. Don't, yes. don't forget, don't forget about those that. legumes. I don't even know the difference between a bean and legume, but maybe you guys can cover that on your- We won't even podcast. talk about pulses then. Oh, I don't even know what you're talking about. Okay. So what did that show? They said that the students who participated in it uh, were more likely to follow the Mediterranean diet, more likely to satisfy the recommended daily intake of fruits and vegetables and more likely to agree that nutrition counseling should be a routine part of clinical care. And they were also better at counseling patients on nutritional choices and things like that. So I think that's kind of the way forward. Uh, Again, not just medical school, but on the other areas as well, in practice as well. But I don't know, I thought that was an interesting thing that they tried in the US. And so hopefully we can do something like that in Canadian medical schools. Marco Timpano joins us. He's a uh, terrific podcaster. He has a number of podcasts. You can look them all up. The one that is most relevant to me is our podcast. This podcast is delicious. If you like food, if you like drink, if you like having a laugh and really taking a nice break from your worries, that's what Marco and I uh, meet every week to help people do. The next episode we have coming up will be about uh, Italian lessons, where I quiz Marco about a bunch of Italian culinary terms and and we see if this guy knows a thing about a thing or two. This podcast is delicious, available wherever you find your podcast. We are Dr. Versus Comedian. We're available also on all your fine, I feel like always saying retailers, resellers. We're available wherever you listen to podcasts. And Gmail, you can, you know, I actually want to give our email address in particular today, Asif, because uh, we do have a lot of people if they're not doctors, they're associated with the medical industry. I really want to get some feedback from our, our listeners about this podcast and what your thoughts are and how much you've learned. And if you have a resource for people who are medical professionals who want to learn more, who should learn more about food and medicine, I think this is, for me, it's one of the most important conversations in our world today. And if you know about any, you know, kind of like whatever, something that facilitates this roadblocks that people are against, whatever opinions you have about, I'd love to hear about it. Dr. V comedian at gmail.com. You can also reach us via Twitter or Instagram at Dr. 
the, the comedian. comedian. Yes. Excellent, Ali. I'm glad you memorized that. Uh, thanks again, Marco, for coming on. Everyone, check out his book. If you're at all interested in starting a podcast, uh, 25 Things I Wish I Knew Before I Started My Podcast, it really, like, literally, it changed my life because that's how I got into podcasting. So I do appreciate it, Marco. Definitely check that out as well. And remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues, we talk about it for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Ciao, everybody. Ciao. Bye.